Welcome back to another impactful night of the Impact Education Leadership. This is episode 174. I'm your host, ID34, Isaiah Drone. The third tonight's parents are Dr. Teresa Poussaint, Anika Jones, and Buddy Throwing Plus Social Change Agent Pro. Anika Jones, please say hello to the people. Hello, hello. How are y'all doing? Thank y'all for joining us today. Absolutely. And Buddy Thornton, Positive Social Change Agent Pro. Please say hello again to the people. This is one of the favorite times of my day. I really appreciate being out here with my panel mates tonight. And uh, the audience should be in for a thrilling show. Wow. And with that being said, Dr. Teresa Poussaint, please say hello to the people. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here this evening with you all. Well, what's a nice topic is empathy for self-destructive behavior. And when I got the topic for tonight, the first thing I thought about was so many cases of people sabotaging their relationships because they just didn't know how their behavior looked. Let me go across the panel real quick, and I want to ask the question, what was the first thought that came to your mind when you got the topic for tonight? Buddy, let me start with you. The first thing I thought was, if people actually could learn this and embed this into their subconscious, a lot of the conflict that we face would just simply melt into dust. It would just be gone. So I think it's a very appropriate uh, topic, and we need to just really hammer it home. Absolutely, absolutely. And Anika Jones, what was the first thought that came to your mind when you saw the topic for the night? Super similar to a buddy's thought, thinking about awareness. So just buddy talked about things, you know, being embedded into your subconscious, but literally sometimes we don't know what we don't know. So getting that awareness up. So then, uh, yeah, a lot of the shenanigans, like buddy said, things, you know, there will be conflict because we're people, right? Disagreement is natural, but a lot of it is shenanigans that don't have to happen. Oh, that's good. That's good. And Dr. Teresa Poussaint, what was the first thought that entered your mind when you saw the topic for tonight? Uh, when we're talking about empathy, um, unfortunately, I don't see a lot of it in, in society today, which is which is sad. It really, really is a sad state. That that, um, but it's a learned skill that we can learn to be empathetic towards others and and have compassion and understanding. So um, that is what I I wish that we would just have more of. Uh, but I told I I see too much of the total opposite. So I'm looking forward to really discussing this subject of empathy. Oh, that's good. That's, you know, and when you said that, I, you forced me to open up the panel already because there there is a a difference. There is a differentiation that needs to be addressed before we even get started. And that is, let's go around the board real quick. Let's go around the panel and let's break down this. What's the difference between sympathy and empathy? Who wants to take that first? What is what is the difference? My, my hot take, a uh, quick summary is sometimes it seems that, well, most often really, it seems that sympathy is simply paying a, a lip service where, uh, you know, in an unfortunate, quote unquote, right, or a sad situation like, oh, that was sad. But there still can be um, a disconnect from the emotion side, actually uh, being moved to do something. And that is what empathy is. It's more so, yes, you understand 
what's happening right from someone else's perspective so still that awareness but you're moved to do something versus just maybe perhaps a, a shallow feeling or even a feeling of apathy like dr Poussaint just said a moment ago uh, yeah, sympathy is about just having compassion for other people. Um, empathy is putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And I believe that that is a part of why Daniel Golden made it a part of the emotional intelligence uh, definition that he coined. Um, having empathy, the ability to just look at look at someone else's, uh, look through the lens of someone else and not just your side. Um, having that empathetic um, um, understanding of what someone else is going through. Right. An uncontrollable number of people are dealing with unbalanced biochemical processes, interacting with prolonged life stress and diverse personality factors that produce mental pain, mental anguish, mental distress. To better understand the relationship between mental distress and self-destructive behavior, it is necessary to place it in a broader context that includes other important factors and processes related to suicidal behavior, such as extraordinarily hostile and stressful life events, as well as personality traits and factors that may exacerbate self-destructive behavior. One personality factor that may play a central role in the suicidal process is emotional regulation. Moreover, moreover, this is why empathy is an effective mode of regulation of emotions. It can mediate, it can mitigate negative feelings caused by stress and reproduce or prevent mental pain in the long run, whereas sympathy can increase mental pain. Now, this topic tonight is going to save so many relationships. Uh, oftentimes, especially during Valentine's Day, which is a week from now, People that have been in relationships or in a relationship for years and, you know, something happened because there was no empathy. That person didn't, you know, get in the trenches with them and not not to help them out the trenches, but just get in there with them and let them know, hey, I understand I'm in here. I'm in here with you. How important is it? I want to open the panel up again. How important is it? When you're going through a life-changing situation, how important is it to have a support system? How important is it to have someone, it doesn't have to be your husband, doesn't have to be your boyfriend, doesn't have to be your wife, girlfriend, but how important is it to have somebody in the trenches with you? Somebody that has your back, somebody that's standing next to you, shoulder to shoulder. How important is that to you as a person? Who wants to take that first? Um, I, I, it's, it's Dr. Poussaint. Yeah, I think it's important, um, but for me, because I don't have a husband, he's deceased, and because I don't have a quote-unquote soulmate or anything, I, I lean on God. You know, I go, I go to my, I go to my spirituality, and and God is my guide. He's my provider. He's my protector, and and I just have a lot of faith, and and I deal with it on a spiritual level more so than a human human level. I try to just go to God for everything and 
And if I'm patient, um, he'll give me an answer. He, he always does. You, you, you're you so strong. You, you, you have gone through a lot. You, you just lost your, your, your baby not too long ago. You lost your daughter. And you know, a lot of people can't even fathom that. I, I've seen it in real life. I've seen it on movies. And having somebody that's in the trenches with you, for me, is so paramount is so it's so important i want to let's continue with that question how is important how important is it for you to have someone in the trenches with you to show you that empathy to show you that support system who wants to take that next i'll say uh for me next uh similar to dr kusan i'm not going to say similarly but additionally and in uh my personal life i found that god will often answer prayer through people so even as I'm praying about things and, you know, seeking him and praying for strength sometimes that, you know, someone may come along with an encouraging word. Sometimes it can be uh, music. It's, it'll just be a lot of different points of, you know, confirmation and affirmation where, yes, I know he's answering my prayer. Yes, I know he's listening. But um, I will say that the, a human factor Right, so the different levels of friend circles and the different levels of village, if you will. You know, the village doesn't have to be deep. It doesn't have to be a million people, just as long as your your village is solid. Uh, in this particular time and phase of my life, it, it is also important to me with my spirituality. Absolutely, absolutely. There, there are so many pitfalls when it comes to sympathy. There are so many pitfalls. And does sympathy really help someone? Do, does someone really feel like they're being helped when someone is sympathetic to what they're going through? Or do they feel like that your sympathy is really making fun of what they're going through and is really not helping? Baythor, let me, I want to I wanna come to you. I want to go down your lane. I want to ask you a question. And that question is, why... Why empathy versus sympathy? Why understanding those two concepts? Why is that effective for a communication strategy person uh, or a, a communication or even a positive social change agent? Why, why is that so important for them to know the, that the regulation, how to regulate those emotions? Uh, as it relates to people going through different situations. Why why is it so important for you to understand the differences between empathy versus sympathy? That's my question. One of the things that you have to understand is that sympathy and empathy are on opposite ends of a very long continuum. And the midpoint in between the two is different levels of compassion. Sympathy to be very blunt, is comes across as a microaggression to a lot of people. It's blaming, shaming, judging. It feels a little dirty. It's a social pariah compared to empathy. Empathy is climbing down into that foxhole and saying, I'm right here with you, and I don't have to say anything. I don't have to do anything, but I am going to be here with you so I can feel and see everything that you feel and see. And in that way, you mirror your neurology, you use as mirror neurons, and you mirror their pain, and they can see the pain 
in you and they understand that they're not in that problem alone they understand that yes they may feel like this is the world on their shoulders but uh, this person understands what I'm going through because they have decided to take the journey with me, not just watch me, which is what sympathy feels like. Okay, that, you know what? I'm glad you said it. So why do so many people refuse the help? The panel is open. Why then do so many people refuse getting help we see it all the time we see it with grandmother we see it with mama we see it with auntie we see it with dad we see it with grandfather you're going through a life-changing situation but yet you are refusing for us to help you why is that who wants to take that first a lot of people think that showing any kind of pain or anguish is also a projection of weakness and we don't want to project weakness, especially to the people that we have closest to us, because let's take the case of a grandmother or a grandfather. They're supposed to be the rock of the family. They're supposed to be that person that other people can lean on. So when they are distressed, to show that they may need that shoulder to cry on, or they may need someone to climb down into that hole with them, they're afraid that that's going to change the dynamic and people in the family are going to look at them differently. And that's the main reason why people don't ask for help. They're afraid that it's going to change how they look to other people. That's good. That's good. Who's next? Yes, I totally agree with that, um, um, buddy. Um, it, it also happens with our military because my, my late husband was a, a, a vet, served in the Vietnam War. And out of my 18 years of marriage, I would think he talked about his military career maybe one time. Um, it was just something he didn't talk about. But in hindsight, I look at it as um, he didn't get the help he should have gotten once he uh, left that war. And, and again, it's a sign of weakness. That's why veterans don't speak up. They think you're going to treat them differently. And the same thing definitely happens in the black community and the black families, um, which I'm a part of, where we didn't discuss those kind of things. You know, you, you didn't show that weakness because um, that's why, that's why you hear, always hear black women are strong or, or, or that we show the strength and we don't have this, um, we hate to get that vulnerable where, where we have to be analyzed. And then, you know, history again tells us that we don't like laying on someone's sofa and opening up our things and you know we grew up with that concept what goes on in this house stays in this house so um so we come from a generation and a culture where you didn't speak about mental health issues and unfortunately my daughter had a mental health issue and i spoke to her quite often about it and i'm i'm, I'm seeing that the generation of the millennials and the gen z's are much different than the baby boomers um i'm a baby boomer and our generation we just didn't talk about those things you didn't talk about it before my marriage ended I, was, I asked my husband, can we go to counseling? I'm not laying, uh, you know, he's a strong black man. I'm not laying on nobody's sofa talking to no white man about my issues. So you have that, that mentality was there. And, 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 and so mental health issues aren't dealt with. But today, I, I think things are changing. Um, and I'm glad that people like, whatever, however you feel about him, Prince Harry and others who, are, who have a huge following are trying to bring mental health issues to the forefront to say, let's stop 
sleepiness under the rug and let's deal with these things because kids today are filled with so much depression and anxiety. And I'm trying to figure out, was I depressed like that when I was their age? I mean, I mean, I can remember being down a little bit in middle school or something like that, but it is just like it's, it's a different it's a different brand or a different breed of something that's going on in society. But I am glad that 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 these generations are speaking up to say, look, we got issues going on here and we need to we need to figure out and get some help with them. Oh, that was perfect. That was perfect. Who's who's next? Who's next? To add on a little bit to what was said, just even thinking about sometimes. Um, besides, you know, the cape that was referred to, right? The strong black woman, um, you know, you being the matriarch, the patriarch of the family, um, depending, because just like uh, Dr. Poussaint just brought up millennials and Gen Z and even the little alpha babies now, right? The, the youngest generation we have. Maybe everybody doesn't uh, even have the words, the ability to express fully what's wrong. They know something's wrong and they might know that they should be trying to explore, um, you know, maybe some other resources, but they don't, they can't fully express it. So in, in my mind and a lot of my conversation, that's where some of that awareness comes in. Like if you know that the person needs help, like maybe, maybe they can't say and they won't say certain things, but you can still show up and you know how to support them in that space because you know them, you're aware of them. Um, and you may be starting to even add and build and give some of the words, give some of the tools along the way. But yeah, depending on uh, exposure, depending on age, uh, you know, generational, uh, generations, all that, it, there's a lot, there's, I don't know, a million factors I can think of as to why someone may not ask besides cultural, you know? What you said was priceless. What you said was priceless. And let's let's get our hands a little bit more dirty. We're about to get our hands dirty because we're going to talk about right now, as the listeners are listening in, we're about to go in. We're going to have a moment of realization. And what is that? That's real talk. We're going to talk about mental illness, not only in the African-American community, but in all communities, especially after COVID-19. COVID-19, all it did was, <laughs> it just blew the makeup off the surface from what was covered up for so many years. And it, it was covered up by not having enough time to spend with those family members, those students, those, those children. And we let technology raise our children for the most part. What I mean by that, phones, television. That's become the new stepdad, the new stepmom, the babysitter. And because of that, we have not seen, in most cases, those self-destructive behaviors being acted out from our children so that we could correct them before it got out of hand so we can show them how to manage them before they got out of hand and now we're in a place where yeah we know what's going on is getting better as far as information but do they know how to communicate and because they do not know how to communicate for the most part they keep hurting themselves they keep hurting themselves the panel is still open who wants to take this first 
why do people keep hurting themselves? Yeah, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to address at least two things you said. <clears throat> Number one, social media and digital devices are not a destructive behavior. The inability to put aside digital devices is a destructive behavior. Uh, you know, I talk about people who are always looking at I don't want to appear weak. I don't want to let people change their image of me in their mind. But then I take the SWOT analysis, which people use in business all the time, and I apply it to the human factor. Because human, the humanity in, in question is what actually is a weakness? What actually is a threat? When you cannot expose or at least share that you may be in pain, as Robin Williams said, and he did commit suicide, but what he said was people don't fake feeling good. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they fake feeling good. They don't fake being uh, mentally ill. They don't fake having depression. They fake being okay. They never say anything other than, I'm fine. Let me be. Just stay away. I'm, I'm good. The problem is you've got to explain to people and you've got to get them to buy in on the idea that the strength is embedded in the vulnerability. If you cannot share and say, I am strong enough to be vulnerable. I am strong enough to say, I need help. That's where the strength lies. And right now we have such a mix between the generations and everyone's anchoring on baby boomers all the way down to the new newest generation. You know, I'm a great grandfather. I am a baby boomer. And uh, I would like to thank Dr. Poussant's uh, husband for his service. I'm a Vietnam vet as well. And my older brother, uh, he died from PTSD from Vietnam because he spent 30 years in and out of facilities because he refused help. It was a cyclical thing until it finally ate him alive and he died. So when you cannot express vulnerability as a strength, you don't understand how to play on the empathy that is the most powerful thing that you can get from other people. That, that's the one thing that I wanted to say. It's very important. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Who's next? Yeah, I, I also that. Thank you, buddy. That was that. That, that was great. I, I I enjoyed that a bit because that is the. You're right. Being vulnerable is key. I also believe that self awareness is a crucial factor in getting to understand who you are. And if you find that you are suffering from depression, or or um. Or, or suicidal thoughts, it is important to be able to recognize that and to seek help. Now, my, my daughter, um, um, she suffered from PTSD after the death of, 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 of my late husband. And she was a teenager when he passed, so it really messed with her. And it actually, her, that experience gave me a great insight on the effects of, of kids who lose their parents early, 
um, or, or, or what a divorce, the divorce that has an impact on a, on kids' men, mental, mental health. And it can impact them. Um, it didn't affect my youngest daughter, Felicity, too much because she was like five or six, but um, Cordelia being in her formative teenage years, it did impact her. And so she struggled. She struggled quite a bit. And she had these um, issues where she would, she says, Mom, my brain won't turn off. And, and I, there are things I, I uh, she had regrets about her father's death. She didn't do enough for all of these things that popped in her head. And she couldn't sleep for days. And, and very smart girl, IT professional, had two six-figure six income jobs, very, very bright. But her mind just wouldn't turn off, and and this 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 um this this anger or whatever it is that was frustrating in her her mind, she just couldn't get it together. And I and I told her, so I said, you need help. She went to get help, and you know what you know what happens sometimes when you go get help, they just drug you up. And so the the the, the prescriptions that was given to her didn't make her feel normal. She couldn't function. So, you know, so, but, but, so that's how come I took her death with a, with a bittersweet type of thing to say, okay, she's no longer suffering anymore because I knew her pain. Mentally, I knew her pain. Um, but, but it is, it is that self-awareness thing because I had to bring it to her attention. Whether you're in denial or not, you need help. You know, she, and she says, yes, mom, I know I need help. I'm going to go get help. And sometimes it takes one, you know, a person to recognize that. So having self-awareness and being aware that someone is struggling and giving them what you can, because there was only so much I could do. But as a mother, it was my child. And I'm like, I'm going to do whatever I can to help. But, um, yeah, vulnerability and self-awareness to me are key. Oh, this is this is getting so good. Listen, honest, don't go anywhere. I'm about to go to Nikki Jones. Same question: Why do people keep hurting themselves? In your opinion? Um, I mean, really, just uh, echoing a bit what my co-panelists have said. I was just thinking a lot about it a lot from a generational perspective. Again, uh, I think my co-panelists are baby boomers, but you know, we even have traditionalists, uh, a generation that's older than the boomers, and all the way down through alpha. So that simple question. Um, someone said, you know, how are you doing? I'm fine. That it shows up differently, though. Like, if you talk to different generations, that you actually will get a different response. So what we're finding is, yes, the maybe the younger generations are being a bit more honest about it. And just true to the awareness piece, like, we actually have to see, you know, who they are, how they move. So we know when something's wrong, we study them. And so we can really support them. That see, study, support factor is key. Um, so again, if we aren't really seeing and studying, kind of going back to some of the um, device time and making sure that it's balanced out with, you know, genuine interaction, then how do we know what to look for? How do we know when they're not moving how they usually do? You know, a lot of times um, I like to call the mirrors and echoes, right? So especially our younger people, they're showing us what they need, they're, they're giving us feedback, whether it's through the mirrors, right? Things that we see, things that we hear them say, but the mirrors will, will crack if they go unchecked and the echoes will just continue to ricochet. There's a lot of high function and depression that, um, you know, people have been flabbergasted. We could think of a lot of different, um, you know, people that are in the spotlight that committed suicide or have talked about a lot of, um, mental health issues that they're dealing with. But another piece is, I think that it's 
um, not as common for people to be aware of the layers, not just the intensity of the process, but the layers of healing as you go through and strive for wellness is much deeper and much, the duration is much longer. Uh, I think that many people recognize that if you are starting your process, you're going to therapy, you know, you're expressing yourself more, it cycles in waves and layers to be aware of. Oh, this is so good. I've seen pastors do this. I've seen military personnel do this. I've seen principals at schools do this. I've seen teachers do this. I've seen football coaches, volleyball coaches, swim coaches, bowling coaches. I've seen them do this. I've seen mom do it. I've seen dad do it. I've seen grandma do it. I've seen them get into the trenches with their children. I've seen them in that rocking chair at night while their child was out in the streets doing God knows what. I've seen them going to the prison, seen them going to the courtroom, seen them going to the jail house to get their kids out of prison, out of jail because of those self-destructive behaviors. I've seen them get in the trenches. I've seen them lose sleep. I've seen them weary themselves to a fit. I've seen them lose weight. I've seen these parents go through hell. I've seen it. I've seen them go through pain. I've seen them go through suffering. I've seen them not let go of their child until it seemed as if something supernatural pried their child out of their fingertips and then they could do nothing but pray. I, I've seen it. I've, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen it. And so tonight we're going to talk about personal stories and how important these personal stories are for healing, for wholeness, and for peace. Peace where? Between your ears. Peace in your mind. And so, I want to ask this question. How has what you've experienced caused you to find your hidden power? Because if you can share with the listening audience how you found your hidden powers then hopefully it can help them find theirs who wants to take that first I'll jump in and then I'll let the ladies fill up all the gaps in the Picasso uh, I became a mediator and a pro-social change agent pro 11 years ago why is that important because 11 years ago my brother died he refused help. He didn't want help. He wouldn't talk to anybody. Four days before he passed away, he called me and he asked me for forgiveness. He asked me if I would come and I would help him. And I was making all the preparations for the trip when I got the call that told me he passed away. Ten years before that, I found out that one of the people who stood for me at my wedding had committed suicide. Same thing, he wouldn't ask for help. He refused to ask for help. He did everything himself, and then when he made a decision, boom, instantly he was gone. 
I know that those were my trigger points, that the helplessness that I felt in not being able to make a difference, especially for my friend, but with a deeper biological attachment to my brother, I, I felt like if I had just forced myself into his life, whether he wanted me or not, he was my brother, he was my blood. I could have put myself in there and I could have said, look, we're gonna get help together. Uh, my very good friend and peer, Sandy Roberts, has a saying. She says, I'd rather walk a thousand miles with you down the road than attend your funeral. And I think that having lived through those experiences it colored my world and put me on a path to, uh, you know, just ask, what, what is my purpose? And I found out that my purpose was to keep other people from making those same types of choices. And if we can just save one person at a time, it's good enough. And that's, I'll pass it to the ladies now. Beautiful. I will say that as an educator of almost uh, 20 years, mostly middle school, that um, over the years, um, I, I'll say initially, right? Initially, learning the ropes, it was very much um, by the book and just kind of figuring out what you could and couldn't do, what you should and shouldn't say, those kinds of things, honestly. But at one point, um, you know, a particular student was like my shift to really dig that much deeper. Like, yes, I was going above and beyond in different ways, but to connect in a different kind of level. And it was really because it was gonna be one of my first students that someone was telling me she was wanting to drop out. She was in seventh grade. And so that was a like, okay, whatever we were doing, clearly it's not enough, right? So when I think about um, my lane, my gift, also let me mention that my mom is um, a public school social worker, right? So I've been hearing some of the conversations and things plus applying it in my classroom, but it was really um, digging deeper and connecting in a, a very different kind of way with the adolescents, with those middle schoolers and high schoolers and really just continuing to keep tabs on them. That's what I um, understand just a lot of the um, the conversations, right, that they want to have, um, that they wish people would have with them. So we would. Um, a lot of the moments of honesty and transparency because what would happen, you know, those, you know, a lot of times you hear younger people say, well, nobody understands because they don't think that we went through the same thing as adults. They don't know that we struggled with certain things. They don't know that we made mistakes in relationships or we, you know, just all, all types of mistakes. So just that transparency, that awareness, it makes them feel, um, I guess more connected for one, yes, someone understands, and they're more likely to talk and open up. So it was that one particular student, it was, it was a whole different shift in my uh, educational career, that trajectory, when it was like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna do everything I can. It was like a, a, a true mission that day, and it's been that way ever since. Um, until I started consulting full time, but still instilling that into all the work everything that I do and speak on, just really especially honing in on the adolescent, that space. 10 to 25. That, that was perfect. That was perfect. Dr. Oh, we almost out of time already. Uh, Dr. Poussaint, same question. Sure. Uh, and I'll be brief because I know we're almost out of time. But um, I thank you, buddy. I needed to hear that tonight because I was just talking to Isaiah, talking about how 
since my daughter's death two years ago, it's like, I know I'm not the same. And I wouldn't expect to be the same. But it's like the wind that was taken out of my sail. Because um, I just published my book and I was wanted to make sure I like go on a speaking circuit and motivate women and encourage women and, and things like that. But since losing her, a piece of me is gone. And I'm fighting to get that piece back. But I do know what my purpose is. My purpose is to teach. I am, that is my true God-given gift. And I just became an ordained minister and um, um, so that I can do ceremonies such as funerals or weddings. I'm not looking to do a whole bunch of preaching because I'm a teacher. My daddy was a preacher. But, um, um, but that is my purpose. My daughter, um, like Buddy's brother, um, suffered from PTSD. She did not commit suicide, although when she did not live with me for a little bit, she was called and she said, Mom, I just want to die. And, and, and no mother wants to hear that from their child. And she would send me a text. And I said, don't ever send me a text like that. That tears my heart apart. So she did eventually come back here and live with me. I felt better when she was under the same roof as I am. And she was better when she was with me because I gave her and showed her unconditional love. I loved her just the way she was. So, other than finding my daughter dead one day, that's the part that replays in my head over and over again. And I am struggling to get over that. But I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. Because Buddy was just, um, just telling me through his message that I, I've, I've got a gift. And I've got to use that God-given gift. And I, I'm going to get back there. may not be there at this moment, but I will get back there. And my job is to go out and, and spread the word and to motivate women and to encourage people about mental health or how they deal with it. My daughter was just going through so much. She, the, other med, uh, the other medications didn't work, so she ended up taking a pill. However, she did not know that pill was laced with fentanyl. And that's how I was able to find her the following day dead. So um, this is a serious thing. She just wanted her brain to stop moving, and it did. So she left peacefully. And, and, and quite frankly, when the pastor came over the next day, he said, Dr. Moussant, you look so relieved. I said, I'm, I'm resolved. I'm already at acceptance. All these stages of grief, I'm already at acceptance because I know how she, what she was going through. So I, my gift is to spread the message, the word that 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 um, I am empathetic, and that um, and that we can show empathy towards others and understand where they're coming from. But I can tell you right now, there's nothing like losing a child. You know, when you lose a husband, you're a widow or a widow. When you lose a mother, lose a mother, father, you're parentless, whatever. But when you lose a child, there's really no title for it. And it's just something that it just seems to be unbearable, but but um, I'm going to come out on the other side, no doubt about it. I, I hear so much hope in what you have just said, so much lively hope that has been given to you and that, that grace that God has given to you is rich. And he has given you a grace 
to speak through this grace he has given you has been poured into you so that you can pour it out again now does it does it feel good no it's a sacrifice yes it's, it's a sacrifice and, and a sacrifice is messy a sacrifice is bloody a sacrifice is sorrowful but in the sacrifice when he chooses you for the sacrifice is to save millions of people we're out of time but the last question I have to ask is based off of the topic tonight and we're talking about real stories that connect you to this topic what are some social emotional strategies that you can talk about panelists that will help children and teachers use in their toolbox in their mental toolbox in their social emotional toolbox and how does this topic connect you to that toolbox that you have used yourself to be resilient who wants to take that first the smartest way and the best way that I use is to remove comparables from the equation when you find somebody who is living through the grief cycle and I I cry with you, Dr. Passant. I know exactly where you are, and I would never, never dream of comparing my world with yours because every human being is unique. But the best way to help someone get out of that hole is not to ever say, oh, I've been there. Oh, I, I see that. Oh, I, No, that's sympathy. What you need to do is you need to say, tell me your story. Let me embrace your pain with you let me take the journey with you and then you let them empty the bucket you let them do a brain dump until they have no more in them to dump because once they let it all go then it's out on the table where you can rearrange it like the blocks that need to be rearranged until you find your purpose in the pain because God didn't put us here to just endure pain and then get nothing out of it I'm not saying that every pain has purpose but I am saying that you can if you choose to you can help someone discover their purpose you don't tell them what it is you let them find it with your hand on their shoulder with your arm around them embracing them and letting them know that they're not alone because there's nothing more powerful than that you know, what Dr. Passant described is what we call the living grief cycle. When you are living with someone that you know you want to help more than anything else on this earth, but there's something there that is just not going to let that happen. And yes, when you get to the end of that journey, it is a release. It's a release for them, a final release because they are not here. But it's also a release for you because the empathy that you have embedded in yourself can come up, bubble up, and all of a sudden you can find purpose. And it is a relief that you no longer have to carry that empathetic burden. But it's, it's very important that people recognize that. 
everyone's in pain. Everyone has something they have that they need someone to put their hand on them and say, let me be your brother. Let me be your sister. Let me be your your shepherd. Let me be with you, not to tell you what to do, but just to allow you the presence to do it yourself. And then no judging, no blaming, no shaming, because now you win the battle through empathy. Wow. Who's who's next? I have nothing to add for me. This is Dr. Busan. I have nothing to add there. That was for me. Thank you, buddy. That was for me. <laughs> I'm taking it. Is this excellent? I'm just thinking about... Um, you know, more like in the school setting, though, like I, as a former educator, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't say um, this piece, though. So we, uh, we all spoke about awareness being first and foremost, right? All the panelists, but yourself and then others, but self-care. If we're really talking to educators as they're supporting students through um, building their social-emotional toolbox, so your own personal self-care and balance, because the reality is that teachers educators at all the levels are um, often overwhelmed and, you know, somewhat suffocating through secondary trauma. Because imagine you're dealing with whatever else. As Buddy said, everybody's dealing with something, right? And then you have maybe a classroom of 25. So then it's times 25 as you're working with them. Or if you have three blocks, it's times 75. If you're in secondary, it might be times 150 because that's how many young people sit in your seats every day. So being aware of your um, your own personal self-care, but also your team, right? The, the team and true um, balance within the team and being authentic about your capacity, about what you can really uh, pour on any given day. Some days it might not be as much of a a building day but when you're there you're there you're in your zone but just having that awareness of your capacity because you you have to preserve you first in reality wow this has been another impactful night an impact of educational leadership i guess night where dr <laughs> Teresa poussant anika jones and Wade thornton possible change agent pro good night Facebook.